cliffcentral.com. Michael Cardo, who is a member of parliament and an author and someone who holds a PhD in history from the University of Cambridge, so he sounds like exactly the kind of person I want to spend time talking to, has written an incredible book about Harry Oppenheimer, easily one of the most fascinating people in South Africa, a magnet. Uh, for a while, I think the richest man in the country, if not on the continent, if not one of the richest men in the world at the time. Also someone who made an enormous and invaluable contribution to philanthropy, uh, to many good causes, and to some political causes which have either got him into huge amounts of trouble or people complaining that it wasn't enough. But then people do that with history. Everything's revisionist these days, and we'll talk to Michael about that in just a second. The book is called Harry Oppenheimer. Diamonds, Gold, and Dynasty. And my guest is Michael Cardo. Michael, nice to see you. Thanks so much, Gareth. It's great to be here with you. First of all, you look uh, young and full of life, but I'm sure that while you were doing this book, it was quite a lot of research. It was indeed research intensive, so... I'm feeling particularly middle-aged after having spent six years of my life on uh, no, 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 no. Give yourself some credit. Um, you, you look way younger than me, which is, you know, and, and I don't, uh, I don't get myself into a project like this very often, but this must have been fun. At the same time, you, you were given unfettered access to the archives, right? I mean, the, the Oppenheimers themselves said to you, go, go wild. You can do what you need to do here. Um, and I know that there was, there was a lot that happened behind the scenes before you could even get to, Publishing the book. Yeah. So how it came about is that the late, great Jonathan Ball uh, approached me to write the book. Uh, He was a friend of mine and over one of our regular breakfasts, he said to me, well, why didn't you take on this project? I'd written one biography before, uh, which had been published by Jonathan Ball Publishers. It was a biography of a man called Peter Brown, who was a, a founder member and leading light in the Liberal Party in South Africa in the 1950s. And mm. it'd been a hiatus. I'd been busy doing other stuff. I'm a member of parliament, which engages my energies full time. Uh, but this project really was too good to turn down because Harry Oppenheimer as you said in your introduction, is a titanic figure. He's a towering figure, Mm. and his life really straddles the whole of 20th century South Africa, and he was intimately involved in so many aspects of that history, not just in terms of the corporate sphere, but also (laughs) politically, philanthropically, et cetera, et cetera. So, yes, I was given unfettered access to all the papers in the Brenthurst Library, which is a magnificent repository of Africana. You know yourself. You've been there, and it contains – you know, a multitude of fascinating manuscripts sure. outside of the family papers. Absolutely. But all of the Oppenheimer family papers are there. So I worked through all of HFO's papers. HFO is how Harry Oppenheimer was ubiquitously known in the uh, empire of Anglo-American, but also Bridget Oppenheimer's papers, which contain some fabulous stuff. And there was really a mountain of material to work through, which is why it took me a long time piecing it all together. And then, of course, you have all the usual challenges that come with writing a book, how to piece it all together. You know, people think, well, it's a biography. It's straightforward. You just start at the beginning and finish at the end. But you've got to structure the book. You've got to be able to identify and draw out the major themes. So all of that was a, a huge, daunting challenge. But I couldn't have done it without access to that material. And, and the, the family themselves, were they forthcoming with interviews, that sort of thing? Absolutely. So, you know, as I reflect in the acknowledgements of the book, um, the seal of authorization can be a double-edged sword at once empowering and potentially constraining. But I can honestly say with this project, when I met the Oppenheimers at the outset, and this was back in 2017, when I began my research, there was no expectation 
that I should burnish the paterfamilias's image. And yeah, because there is that. I mean, also this is a this is a family who are are widely respected, and I think in South Africa sort of looked on um, in in a in a hallowed kind of way. Certainly by people who know what they've done. There are a lot of people who say, "Oh, white monopoly capital or whatever." Yeah. But you know, they're they're a they're a distinguished bunch, and they are not the sort of people who are looking for attention. Absolutely not. Um, you know, traditionally the Oppenheimers have been an exceptionally private family. Um, and I know that they wanted to wait a while after Harry Oppenheimer's death before allowing somebody to write a biography of so what, him. You, you got to sit with Nikki, with Mary. I did. So at the outset of the project, I met, I had a couple of rounds of meetings with the family. Uh, at first I met Mary Slack, Harry Oppenheimer's daughter and Nikki Oppenheimer, his son. And then I met with the grandchildren too. So they were all intimately involved. Uh, Harry Oppenheimer's youngest granddaughter, Rachel Slack was particularly involved in the project and she was great. She was an invaluable source of contact because I used to pepper she's her great. with questions. You know. And she's really interested in the family. And she's history. interested in the family history. And I used to sort of badger her with questions ranging <laughs> from the top to the bottom of the family pile. You know, what's the name of the dog in the family photo yeah. from 1997? <laughs> uh, and she was always willing to help me out. And yes, I wouldn't have been able to get access apart from the papers. I suppose to many of the people who knew and worked with HFO. So there's a legendary man, Julian Ogilvy Thompson, known as Jot in the Anglo fashion, who I think must be approaching about 90 years of age, but he really is an encyclopedia. He, he knew or had perfect recall of everything that ever transpired in the Anglo-American wow. empire. He, he started out as Harry Oppenheimer's PA. Was he like the right-hand man? He was. Um, well, he started out as the PA in 1958, and he eventually became chairman of uh, De Beers and Anglo-American too. So he was there for a very long period, and he's got a mind like a steel trap. I mean, he has perfect recall of everything. So it was wonderful speaking to him. And, of course, there were other close associates of Harry Oppenheimer's uh, whom it might have been a little more difficult to approach or to get to sit down and speak to absence the cooperation of the family. And I must say the family was, you know, candid and cooperative and I wouldn't have been able to do it without them. All right. But then if we look at, at the family who are the future and we look at the past, um, which is Sir Ernest Oppenheimer. Yes. I mean, he was an interesting man and also a force of nature. And really he, he was the original. Yeah. He was the founder of this dynasty. And no doubt his influence on Harry was enormous. Um, what what role did he play in, in in this biography? Well, that's a very good expression to describe him as a force of nature because he was exactly that. You are quite right. He was the first generation founder. So Sir Ernest Oppenheimer founded the Anglo-American Corporation in 1917. He'd actually come out to South Africa about six months after the death of Cecil John Rhodes in 1902 as a young man. He was born in 1880. So they never met. No, they never met. Okay, um, you'd, you'd think there was like an, almost an uninterrupted line there, but that's quite Yes, that's, that's, quite that's an acute observation because both Sir Ernest Oppenheimer and Harry viewed the family enterprise as standing in what they called the Rhodes tradition. So, right, and so, of course, th- we're talking about someone now who's been completely villainized yeah. in modern history. Uh, you know, there are all these people who assume that they are so virtuous and good that they can project their own virtue and goodness backwards in time and judge people 
who lived in very di- different circumstances and had very different choices to make, which is irritating for a historian. Yeah. I don't need to tell you that. Yeah. Right? I mean, this is one of the perils of writing history in the current <laughs> context is this notion of presentism whereby, you know, the protagonist of the calling past. they present- Yeah. The protagonists of the past are viewed through the lens of the present uh, in terms of our current values, mores, attitudes. So it's very easy and a very prevalent thing for somebody like Oppenheimer to be hastily dismissed on the basis of not living up to what we regard as the proper progressive, mm. politically correct yeah, standards. You, no, but today. it's not just, it, I suppose this is the irritating thing is it's not just in respect of one or two aspects of their business dealings, for example, yeah. or maybe their attitude to certain practices that were continued at the time. But it's the idea that you have to be this perfect and completely virtuous person at all times and that any opinion that you had that is not reasonable by today's standards must immediately make you a terrible person. Absolutely. And that's such a danger when it comes to writing history and biography in particular, when you're trying to get to grips with an individual. I mean, no individual is black or white. No individual is wholly good or wholly bad. There are shades of gray. And the role of the biographer is to tease out those shades of gray and to understand them and to grapple with them, not to dismiss and to sort of categorically um, just your subject. Yeah, well, I mean, when you're talking about the Oppenheimers, for example, there's also this proclivity because it's become very cool to criticize um, material success um, because it's something that uh, a lot of people, particularly on the political left, they don't have. They can't even count in their number any particularly materially successful people. Yeah, And that's part of the reason maybe they're on the left. But in today's society, it seems that if someone has been um, – the kind of, you know, barren, the, I mean, and even barren is now a, a rude word. I suppose magnet is okay still. Um, there are certain words that you've used in the book, which I think probably are better suited to the, the sorts of opportunities that these guys saw mm. and that they, they sought to make the most of. Yeah. And they created value where there was none and they built things where there was nothing. And that takes a lot of vision, but it's bound to get you criticism in the rearview mirror. So with Ernest in particular, did you have to tread carefully around things just because at the time he was starting Anglo-American proper, um, there was such a hangover of the British Empire. There was such a hangover of um, South Africa's genesis as a as a country, the union of South Africa at that point. There were also enormous political uh, Heads bashing mm. the, the the SAP and the then very very nascent National Party. Yeah. There were also the issues around black people in South Africa and their own representation, which of which there was none. Obviously, I mean, I just I recently did an interview. Uh, I did a talk on Pixie Kaisekaseme, who was around at about that time, and you couldn't have people too far more far, far apart than mm. like Pixley and Sir Ernest Oppenheimer. Yeah. And yet, I think they probably had very similar views on very many political things. Yeah. Well, there's quite a lot to unpack there. But just going back to Sir Ernest Oppenheimer, you're quite right um, when you described him earlier as a force of nature. He, he was the originator of the family dynasty and of the family enterprise. 
And actually, interestingly enough, Nicky Oppenheimer described him to me as a kind of pirate. You know, he was a, a swashbuckler. He was a adventurer. An, he was an adventurer. He was an entrepreneur in the true sense of the word. And that often comes with sometimes rough edges. Um, Harry Oppenheimer, by contrast, even though he had an extraordinarily warm and intimate relationship with his father, a very, very close bond, which I describe in the book as an almost telepathic connection. He wow. was much more cerebral. He was much more measured, uh, probably far less gung-ho. I describe him as a, a liberal, but of a conservative sort to be sure. But they, they worked very well together. So Ernest Oppenheimer fizzed with these creative ideas and Harry Oppenheimer tended to to marshal them down on paper and give them structure. But going back to your earlier question It was almost about, like more of a COO as opposed to... Yes, and certainly, yeah. I mean, remember when Sir Ernest Oppenheimer died in 1957, Anglo was uh, beginning to become a big, sprawling beast. I'm not sure that its administration and its structure was that easy to navigate. And Harry <laughs> no. Oppenheimer actually modernized and professionalized that to a certain degree. But just going back to your earlier question about wealth, hmm. yes, there is a tendency among people on the left to regard billionaires in particular as you know, anathema. Um, and to or think, some kind of perverse aberration. Yeah, or to automatically assume that the, you know, the gain of their wealth somehow involved criminal enterprise. Or, or, or standing on yes. other people. Which becomes crushing them under complicated <clears throat> with the Anglo-American empire. By the way, we're not picking on the left here. No, no. I'm only saying this because most of the people who publish books, yeah. most of the people who read books, most of the people in academia, most of the people who would do the kind of research that you did here on Harry Oppenheimer are probably people who are fairly warm to those ideas. Yes. And, you know, I mean, I, I hasten to add, <laughs> I mean, I, I make no bones about the fact that I probably share certain ideological inclinations with Harry Oppenheimer and certainly what certain were, What were his politics? Sorry to, to well, keep interrupting you, know, you here. I mean, but it's, he, was regarded, so he, he was regarded in the South African context as a liberal and partly that was a function of the fact that he really was the – the financial backbone of the Progressive Party when it was formed in 1959. This was the breakaway of the United Party. It was, you know, the main liberal opposition to the National Party in Parliament, even though it had one lone MP for 13 years, Helen Sussman, between 1961 and 1974. And so when the Progressive Party was formed in 1959 – the, the people who broke away from the United Party, their first port of call was Brentus. They went to mm-hmm. consult with Oppenheimer and to get the sort of baronial benediction. Uh, they, they needed his money for one thing. I mean, he was the major bankroller of the Progressive Party um, throughout its existence. And he was a close personal friend of Helen Sisman's, especially Zach de Beer too, and Colin Eglin. And he was intimately involved with the Progressive Party. So he was regarded as a liberal in the South African sense. But, you know, HFO had – a couple of lines which he liked to trot out. And one of them was, you know, in the South African context, I might seem like a liberal, but really I'm just an old-fashioned conservative. And I think that's probably very true. He was a Tory at heart. Right. Uh, he was a conservative liberal. And he wasn't perhaps as as far-sighted as some other liberals in the South African context. He was a very different sort of a liberal to the kind of liberals who formed the Liberal Party in 1953, they were much more social democratic. Their, their liberalism was probably more egalitarian for the times, more radical. Uh, but Harry Oppenheimer probably best described as a Tory. 
And the interesting thing about him is that, you know, he had very deep pockets uh, and there were several discrete compartments to those pockets. So at the same time that he gave money to the Progressive Party, he also gave money to Encarta. Uh, He admired greatly Mangasuta Buttelezi. And he gave money to the Encarta Institute, sort of a think tank associated with Encarta. And then I came across a wonderful letter in the archives um, from somebody pleading for money for Winnie Mandela, who at that stage was exiled in Brunfort. And he stumped up for that too. And, you know, mm. he uh, also – I wonder how many people know about that. He didn't tell people, of course. No, no. He was very discreet in oh. his money so, giving. So while we're on politics, mm. uh, when did the – when did when did Harry stop actively kind of paying for other people? Was it when Helen Sussman got out? When it was it when the PFP became a thing? When when the DA became or then the DP became a thing? When did they stop as as a family or or he in particular? When did they stop kind of paying for politicians and causes in the political realm? Well, Harry Oppenheimer was always a generous benefactor to the Progressive Party through its various reincarnations up until the time of his death. You know, he, he died okay. in 2000. Um, Tony Leon has this great anecdote when he became the leader of the DP in 1994 after Zach De Beer stood down. Mm-hmm. He went to see Harry Oppenheimer and to ask for money. And Harry Oppenheimer said to him, well, how much do you need? And Tony Leon hadn't really thought about a figure, so he just sort of plucked one from thin air, and he said, I'd like 600,000 rand, thank you very much. And HFO gave the money so graciously and so effortlessly that Tony Leon wondered, you know, well, what would have happened if I asked for 10 times more? (laughs) Probably would have got it. Um, So he gave to uh, political causes, especially the, the Progressive Party, but to various philanthropic causes throughout his life. Okay, I'm going to have to concentrate to stay on a timeline here too, yes. because I, I do want us to cover quite a lot of ground and your book is really worth anyone's time. If you're interested in not only the history of this incredible man and his very, very interesting life, but also if you care about the history of South Africa, which you already hinted at. So let's just talk about the time and the place that he, he lived and what kinds of things he saw, the sort of people he met. Cause he was at this, unbelievably interesting nexus of politics and business and 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 the world changing quite rapidly and South Africa's role in the world they were they were an international business too yeah um there's so many things there that i think placed him in a very unique position and gave him insights that probably not a lot of people would have had yeah he was very fortunate in that regard because bear in mind his father Ernest Oppenheimer had been a member of parliament too. He was a member of parliament for the United Party between 1924 and 1938. Ernest Oppenheimer was a great friend of Jan Smuts. Mm. And so Harry Oppenheimer was exposed to many of the leading political lights of the day uh, when he was a young man. So just to give a sort of broad outline for your listeners of the chronology, he was born in 1908 um, the family lived in Kimberley for the first seven years of Harry's existence, and his father was the mayor of Kimberley. But they were driven out of town um, when Ernest was the mayor in 1915, after the sinking of the Lusitania. This was in the First mm. World War, and the fact that Ernest Oppenheimer had a German surname didn't stand him in good stead with the, the townsfolk who turned their eye on him. And he was driven out, and he took refuge in Cape Town, vowed never to settle in Kimberley again. 
uh, spent the remainder. It was like a mob. Yes, there was a mob. They attacked him. Um, they attacked him in his car, and he actually took refuge in the local convent, and he, he never forgot the kindness of the, the Catholic nuns, um, and I think gave money to that particular convent um, you know, throughout his life. Wow. So Harry ended up in England uh, during the First World War. He was schooled at Charterhouse, went to Oxford, came back to South Africa in 1931, and that's when he gets involved in the business. So he's a young man of 23, meets all the leading figures in the United Party, forms very strong opinions on them. For example, I don't think he thought Smuts was up to much in terms of uh, his economic knowledge. I mean, he, he had a great admiration for Smuts. He, really? he revered him, but he didn't think he, he knew too much about economics. And yes, he interacted with the, the great and the good, and he was really a man who transcended South Africa's parochial politics. You know, I had this line in the book, and I say that it was easier for Harry Oppenheimer to walk through the gates of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue as a dinner guest of the American president uh, than it was for him to dine with the National Party Prime Minister. I'll explain why. So when he became a (laughs) member of parliament in 1948 in the watershed election, Harry Oppenheimer found himself on the opposition benches. The United Party thought this wasn't going to last for long. They'd turn there was around an the situation. Hatsuk one, right? And then, uh, uh, no, 1948 Nats. was when D.F. Milan. D.F. Milan, yeah. correct, sorry. Um, and they thought, the United Party did, that they would be able to turn the situation around. The Nats had sort of rigged things on the constituency front, loaded the rural votes, and this was a, a short-lived thing. But as we all know, it lasted for a lot longer than a period of five years. And in that period of him being in Parliament, and even – Long beyond that, Harry Oppenheimer never dined with the National Party Prime Minister. The first time he dined with the National Party Prime Minister was when, uh, through the good offices of his friend Henry Kissinger, he dined with P.W. Boerta and Elise at Libertas in 1982. But he was invited to dine with JFK and Jackie Kennedy at the White House in 1962. I think I came across this wonderful um, letter from Jackie Kennedy and Bridget Oppenheimer's scrapbook. So Bridget Oppenheimer kept these voluminous scrapbooks that grew progressively fatter with each passing year of her marriage. And she sort of threw everything in there, you know, computer forms, old racing cards, photographs, scribbled <laughs> notes, um, quite colorfully observant aid memoir. Uh, but one of the things she had in there was this effusive thank you letter from Jackie Kennedy because the Oppenheimers had gifted um, the first couple with this wonderful Civil War painting and Jackie Kennedy wrote to them to say, you know, this just looks absolutely wonderful in the Red Room. It's the painting that I've always wanted. Thank you so much for coming for dinner, blah, blah, blah. So it was fascinating to me that Oppenheimer managed to meet with very significant figures on the world stage. Another was Lyndon Johnson, LBJ, mm-hmm. great burly bear-like figure, yep. um, received Oppenheimer at the White House. But he received Harry Oppenheimer while he was having his hair cut. Yeah, he used to do these yeah. weird things, like he talked to people from the bath or Well, whatever, he was yeah. in the bathroom, dressed in his robe, in his dressing gown, in the process of having his hair cut. And once that was over, he retired to the bedroom and sort of proceeded to lie down on the bed. And he had this machine blowing air on his face to revive him before his evening's engagements. And that's how he received Harry Oppenheimer. Wow. Um, but uh, Harry Oppenheimer had great regard for Charles de Gaulle, was another statesman. Oh, wow. Who he met um, just before he left the Elysee Palace in the late 1960s. And it was a wonderful anecdote. Harry Oppenheimer went to meet de Gaulle and de Gaulle said to him, he sort of barked at him, you know, que voulez-vous? What do you want in French? And well, Harry Oppenheimer hadn't really thought of an answer to this. So he said, well, I've 
come to see you because you're a very great man. And at the back of his mind was actually I've come to see you because you're pretty much like the Eiffel Tower, <laughs> you know, something grand that must and have been at stage. That must have been at the stage where, where de Gaulle had become so paranoid. Yes. I mean, he, he just thought everything was, was, uh, that there were people against him waiting to yeah. chase him out like Louis the 16th. But the interesting thing was that Oppenheim <laughs> had actually gone to see him about his handling of the Algerian situation. He wanted to right. see whether there were parallels with South Africa. So he had a, an amazing reach that really transcended the South African stage. You know, he, he knew international statesmen. He interacted with them. In the case of Henry Kissinger, Kissinger really sought out Harry Oppenheimer's advice on the South African situation. So he also had a really good mind for money. And it's all good and well to, you know, be this sort of crazy entrepreneur that his father was, but to actually take that and make more of it. And I, I think that you could maybe draw a parallel here with Johann Rupert doing the same with Anton Rupert's fortune that he built. Um, it's rare, though, to find that mostly the second generation just lives on it and the third generation yeah. squanders it, right? Absolutely. And, and Harry had this ability to see opportunity and to, in a very much more calculated and sensible way, kind of grow this and grow that and invest in this and invest in that. And all of it was very, very well thought through. Totally. So, I mean, pick the old, a good horse to back. Yeah. Um, the old adage has it that, you know, the first generation makes the money, the second generation spends it, and the third blows it all away. Yeah. But in Harry Oppenheimer's case, what he did is that he, he inherited this formidable corporate patrimony in the form of the Anglo-American Corporation and De Beers, and he proceeded to do so much more with it. And I think his two great achievements uh, were that he – took Anglo-American from beyond being a traditional mining finance house, and he really helped to diversify it into industry in the 1960s. Look, partly that was a function of exchange controls in South Africa, so corporations like Anglo had to reinvest domestically. Right. But this entry into secondary industry is really marked by the formation in 1964 of Heifelt Steel, huge steel producer, headed by a difficult but extraordinarily talented man, Graham Bastard. And this signals Anglo's entry into secondary industry at scale, to the point where Anglo-American really completely dominated the South African economy. At one stage, I think it accounted for, you know, 70% of the market capitalization of the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, and it had a, a range of interests covering the whole gamut of the South African economy. It had interests in property, in finance, in construction, oh, yeah. the Carlton Center in downtown Johannesburg. And the other aspect of Harry Oppenheimer's contribution to the Anglo empire was Anglo's international diversification. So you spoke, spoke earlier about Sir Ernest Oppenheimer having conceived of himself as being in the Rhodes tradition, you know, that meant that he also sort of conceived the Anglo-American Corporation as a sub-Saharan African enterprise, whereas Harry Oppenheimer was much more cosmopolitan, much more of an internationalist, and he ended up taking Anglo to have a presence on, you know, pretty much every single continent. He took mm -hmm. Anglo into Australia <clears throat> in the 1960s, he gave it a footprint in South America in the late 70s and early 80s. The fascinating thing for me was that through its affiliate company called Minorco, uh, which started out life as the Zambian Anglo-American Corporation, but when the copper mines were nationalized in Zambia, 
Um, they took the money in dollars, repatriated to Bermuda, and that grew into Menorca. <laughs> uh, and Menorca became the single largest investor in North America by 1981 with uh, a big interest in a massive commodities trader and uh, banks there. So Harry Oppenheimer was an internationalist. He wanted uh, the Anglo-American empire to have footholds all around the globe. And this, I think, was really one of his great achievements as a corporate titan. Uh, he really expanded the presence of the Anglo-American empire globally. So he was an empire builder, much like his father, Very a consolidator much. and a builder. Very much so. And, and again, rare characteristics for you to have in two generations. Yes. Um, subsequent generations. So – the other interesting thing about him that I think a lot of people are quite fascinated by is the fact that there was this Jewish heritage mm. of which they were never embarrassed, yeah. right? They were never, it was never a, oh no, we're not Jewish, but they were also converts to Christianity. Um, and so for a lot of people, this seems like it's, uh, it's something that, that is, is, is almost like cognitive dissonance, but to them it wasn't. And they continued to support many, uh, Jewish causes. They also had a very healthy relationship with Israel, especially with respect to the diamond businesses. Yeah. Um, and it was something that they managed to straddle quite elegantly, mm. I think. So that's a fascinating topic. You know, when I interviewed Nicky Oppenheimer, he was absolutely insistent that his father had a bar mitzvah, but I could find no record of it. Interestingly, in the collection, there is Harry Oppenheimer's bris certificate, which for your Gentile listeners is, is his circumcision certificate at birth. <laughs> yeah. uh, but there was no documentation about his bar mitzvah. And, you know, the family left Kimberley in 1915, at which stage Harry was six, turning seven. Ernest vowed never to live there again. But there was this kind of mythology which had developed that, yes, Harry Oppenheimer had had a bar mitzvah at the Kimberley Shul. Yeah. But I could find no documentary uh, supporting evidence that. But that wouldn't have been in that. Kimberley and he would have had to have been 14. Well, precisely. Yeah. Um, and then, interestingly, I found in the collections, in the papers at Brenthurst, a baptism certificate for Harry's brother, Frank. Harry had a brother, Frank, two years younger than him, born in 1910, died tragically in Madeira in a drowning accident in 1935 and i found a baptism baptism certificate uh for a parish uh, anglican parish hampstead heath on the hill dated 1919 and i thought well that's strange surely there would have been an equivalent record for harry right. surely he would have been baptized at the same time anyway i couldn't find such a record but it seems to me that he probably would have been baptized mm. in 1919 he went to charterhouse this english public school which sure. You know, in the fashion of English public schools, probably, I should imagine, had an undercurrent of anti-Semitism. Um, oh, yeah. In Oxford, I came across a, a note from Harry Oppenheimer's old housemaster recommending him for admission to Christchurch, the, the college that he attended at Oxford. And in this note, his housemaster said, you know, Harry Oppenheimer, wonderful chap, very bright, will do well in life, not so much good at games. The only thing that counts against him is his name and his appearance, which I presume was an anti-Semitic jibe. Oh, wow. Um, so, Gareth, Sir Ernest Oppenheimer converted in the 1930s. He had a series of tragedies. His wife, Harry's mother, May, died in 1934. Frank, the other son, died in 1935. And he found solace in a woman called Ina Oppenheimer. She'd been married to another Oppenheimer before then. And she was actually a Catholic, but I came across in the records a letter from Sir Ernest Oppenheimer writing to the Anglican Bishop of Johannesburg, 
seeking communion, dated 1938. So his conversion definitely took place then. Um, and yes, the family did straddle the, the Jewish Anglican divide. Although interestingly, I listened to an interview conducted by John Robbie with HFO. And when John Robbie sort of pressed him on the Jewish heritage, you know, HFO was a famously imperturbable man. Nothing really unsettled him. But yes. He didn't really fancy answering too many questions on the Jewish heritage, but he was a great uh, benefactor to Jewish causes. Um, admired David Ben Gurion, visited the state of Israel for the first time in 1968 with his great friend um, Edmund de Rothschild. He was also a great um, benefactor to Israeli and Jewish causes. And then interestingly, um, Harry Oppenheimer's eldest granddaughter, Victoria, married mm-hmm. a Jewish man um, shortly after HFO's oh. death. So, yeah. And, and what did he say about this in the interview that you heard with John Robbie? Well, that interview would have been conducted I think in the early 1990s, so Victoria hadn't met her. her no, 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 but, but what did he say about the whole uh, I can't remember heritage. exactly what he was. He just sort of, he wasn't too keen on an, engaging on that topic of conversation. Um, yeah, I can't recall specifics of his answer. But look, you know, people often said that the Anglo-American empire was a very waspy institution. Oh, yeah. They often noticed that Jews didn't prosper in the organization. Um and there was often talk that, you know, in order to do well and to get ahead at Anglo-American, you had to be cut from a certain cloth. It helped if you'd gone to um, a private school in South Africa or even one step better, a public school in England, you know, Eton or Harrow or Charterhouse. Um, it helped if you'd been a Rhodes Scholar and gone to Oxford. They often said of Cambridge men that they didn't work out in Anglo. Um, and HFO's PAs often tended to be Rhodes Scholars who had studied the PPE degree at Oxford, okay. um, which was interesting. So, yeah, it, it was quite, I think, a, a waspy institution in its heyday. So there are probably lots of things that we'll leave out here, and that's okay. Um were there things that surprised you, especially about the stuff that most people didn't know? I mean, we obviously saw the company reports and we knew how well Anglo was doing here, there and everywhere, where they were invested, what kinds of new businesses they were taking on, um, the sorts of places that they lived in in South Africa and abroad. But were there things that surprised you, things that he might have done in his spare time, his other interests? Um, the family, of course, t- took a huge interest in the heritage and history of South Africa. Uh, have done a lot to preserve that in various ways, shapes, and forms. Were there things that surprised you? Yes. Um, the thing about Harry Oppenheimer is that he was unusual for a Johannesburg captain of industry or mining mogul. You know, often it's said of those kind of people that they tend to be quite rough and ready and brash. Oppenheimer was very sophisticated, highly mm. cultured. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was at his happiest, I think, when he retreated to his study in the Brenthurst Library, surrounded by his first editions of Byron and Shelley and Keats. Oh, really? So he would read yeah, the classics? Huh? Absolutely. Um, he, he loved Quietly Shakespeare. Quietly spend, maybe walk around the garden and uh, yes. kind of that sort of thing. Well, he so. loved walking around the estate at <laughs> Brenthurst. This was his thinking time. It's when right. some of his best business ideas came to him. But he also loved going to his study. He collected first editions. Um, he loved the works of the English Romantic Poets. Uh, he also loved collecting French Impressionist painting. So he was a deeply – That's not a cheap hobby. No, not at all. <laughs> um, so he was a deeply cultured man. 
uh, highly thoughtful. And I suppose the most interesting aspects of the book to me were not the stuff that I gleaned from the Anglo-American Corporation annual reports. No. It's the more intimate stuff, the, the more family-related stuff, which no one else has seen before. You know, Bridget's scrapbooks, her comments about people. She kept – Guest books for every single person who had ever dined at Brenthurst. And bear in mind, you know, the social side of Anglo-American was very important. And Huge Bridget important. was really the fulcrum. She was the social glue which kept everything together. So often the, 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 the matriarch yes. is not only there that the glue that keeps the family together, but also that keeps the, the magnet, the, yeah, the she entrepreneur kept in place and, and then has to absorb some of the shocks because some of these you know, meetings that they would have, these arguments, yeah. business disagreements, all those kinds of things could be fiery. And then someone has to come in and gently smooth over yeah. the cracks. So Bridget is worth discussing for Absolutely. a minute or two. She was HFO's rock. You know, HFO, I think, was probably quite an introverted personality. I would imagine that he found that very punishing schedule of social engagements Quite draining. He wasn't one for small talk. Yeah. His, his granddaughter, one of his granddaughters told me that, you know, um, it was very easy to spot when he lost interest at the dinner table because his eyes would glaze over. He would start fiddling with his cufflinks. And in her case, his granddaughter, <laughs> she tried to engage him in conversation one evening at dinner and he very, very obviously turned um, the volume down on his hearing aid. And the corporate <laughs> wives had an absolute horror of being seated next to HFO at dinner <laughs> because he was not one for small talk. Whereas Bridget was, you know, a warm, vivacious, congenial. engaging, congenial, charming hostess, very sure to make um, sure that everyone was at ease, very good with social niceties. And she really, Nikki Oppenheimer said to me, you know, when my Mother married my father in 1943. She made a conscious decision to become Mrs. Oppenheimer. She married into the firm. I mean, mm. those are my own words, marrying into the firm. But he said that my mother made a conscious decision to become Mrs. Oppenheimer. And she followed Harry every week down to Parliament when he was an MP mm. from 1948 to 1957. Which a lot of wives – I mean, you, you're a member of Parliament. Yeah. It's not – this is not a fun thing. No, it's, it's not a, like you, got, yeah. you go down there and you do teas and lunches and you talk nonsense yeah. all day. You're sitting in the house, often for long hours. In those days, they used to sit till about 3 a.m. Thank goodness that's no longer the case. And the, the level yeah, of you guys have become very lazy. The level of debate was much <laughs> more rigorous. sophisticated yeah. and rigorous back then. You know, for for all that this was the beginning of a party. You could see the laws were also a little more. Um, it seems sophisticated is the right word. Well, like they were the, horrendous, of course. I mean, the no, no. I'm, I'm laws, talking about the, the the language used. I'm well, not talking about the actual yeah. intention of the legislation, which clearly at that point was. And the debates know. that took place, you know, because I spent a lot of time reading Hansards from the 1950s. Lucky you. <laughs> I found it fascinating. I mean, I love that stuff, so right. it was no hardship for me. But really, the caliber of debate was just utterly superior to what takes place today. You know, you had people who were able to think on their feet. Who and were they witty? Played, they, they, they talked about the subject rather than the person. Yes, they were knowledgeable. Yeah, yeah, and they were articulate. They were eloquent. They were, in some cases, quite learned. They were ready with riposts. Mm. You know, in Parliament today, people get up shouting and name calling. You know, no, no names, no pectoral when it comes to parties. But you know, right. certain MPs will get up there 
and they will stand lifeless in front of the microphone and they'll recite a speech which clearly they haven't written themselves. It's been written by, you know, some functionary party researcher and they're not engaged with the substance of it. And that really is what passes for debate in the South African parliament today, quite unlike the 1950s. All right. So his, his relationship with his children? That's an interesting question. So Bridget Oppenheimer in her own memoirs said that Harry and Ernest had a unique relationship. And as I said earlier, it was a, a warm, special bond. Harry Oppenheimer said that he had these memories of walking around the Brenthurst estate with his father, deep in conversation, and Sir Ernest Oppenheimer would impart what Harry later recognized as suitably ec- edited extracts from Voltaire's Zadig and Candide. <laughs> and Nicky Oppenheimer had a different sort of relationship with his father. Partly, I think that was because he had different aptitudes and interests. Nicky Oppenheimer has a very close relationship with his own son, Jonathan, yes. which I think is more based around sporting pursuits, um, helicoptering and golfing and cricket. Uh, but you must bear in mind that when Harry Oppenheimer entered the business in the early 1930s, Anglo-American really was a family enterprise, a family-run business in the true sense of the word. By the time that Nicky came of age, it was a big behemoth, a sprawling beast mm-hmm. with several different operating divisions run by professional managers. It was much harder at that stage for the family to retain an iron grip over Anglo-American. So, look, Harry Oppenheimer, I think, had perhaps a different relationship uh, with his children than he did with his father, but it was a warm and intimate relationship nonetheless. He was a caring father. You know, I once was reading his diaries from the 1950s uh, when he was a member of parliament, and he had to rush Nicky off. Uh, he had some abdomen troubles. Um, and... I remember talking to Mary Slack about it and she said, well, I wonder where my mother was during all of this because it was often HFO who was taking them off to the doctor or he was, you know, on hand to deal with that sort of stuff. Wouldn't expect that. Yes. So I think he was a a very loving father. You know, that love I think was often expressed through gift giving. Do you think he ever thought about, um, he must have, but it, it seems to me some of these people who we imagine spending a lot of time thinking about their legacy and their contribution to society, well, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they're so busy with the day-to-day stuff and they're already making that happen that they don't sit back and strategize about yeah. this. Do you think Nikki? I mean, uh, Harry was very uh, conscious of his place in society, his role in business, in politics, and in everything else. Do you think he thought very hard about how the world might remember him and acted on the basis of that? Or do you think it was just he lived and kind of the world watched him and then people like you would come much later and write biographies? No, I think he was very mindful of his legacy. Um, I don't think he was the sort of person who lived unthinkingly in the moment. I think he was highly introspective. His father was. Yes, his father, as I say, operated much more on gut and impulse and instinct. Harry, I think, was much more cerebral, more calculating, more thoughtful, which is not to say that Ernest Oppenheimer was unintelligent by any… No, or cavalier. uh, No, absolutely not. But, But Harry was very, very thoughtful. 
uh, and introspective, and I'm sure he gave a lot of thought to his legacy. I mean, that much is clear from the historical record. So yeah. he was acutely aware of the fact that he presided over – uh, an empire for a period of 25 years. That's how long he was chairman of Anglo for, chairman of De Beers for two years longer. And even at the height of that empire, his leftist detractors, not even necessarily from the left, people said that, you know, you I mean, most of his career was detractors from the right. That too, uh, which we can get yeah. into. Afrikaner that's, that's nationalists, yeah. so a lot of people who just had an enormous amount of animus for him. Yeah. And his family, maybe even anti-Semitic stuff deep down inside. Who knows? Absolutely. But you know these uh, these Reich Oppenheimers. Yeah. But on the legacy stuff, he knew that the Anglo-American Empire was always going to be accused of having profited from the terrible triumvirate, triumvirate of migrant labor, past laws, and the party, and, generally, and yeah, and single-sex compounds sure. on the mines. And he was very, very mindful of that. And he often said that, you know, Anglo-American did what it could. We were often at the forefront of ethics compared to the other mining houses, some of which were very conservative and hidebound. But he acknowledged that Anglo-American should have done a whole lot much sooner. So, for example, they approached H.F. Avut when he was the Minister of Native Affairs and asked him for permission to house up to 10% of their workforce in married living quarters, which would have dealt a blow to the migrant labor system. Right. And Favut, of course, was a notoriously difficult, obstinate, um, ideologically zealous man. He said no. But he did actually give them a 3% allocation, but oh. not even at its height did Anglo-American ever fool that 3% quota of living married quarters, mm-hmm. which was a blemish on their yeah. copybook. Yeah. And, yeah, there are all sorts of other things which the Anglo-American Corporation, by extension Oppenheimer, can um, be accused of not having done right. Um, and Oppenheimer was mindful of that. But, yeah, we can certainly chat about the demonization by both so look, left and right. Fascinating stuff. I mean, later on in his life, he was already quite old by then, but this country went through the changes of the 90s, which were seismic. And I'm curious as to how he saw that happening how involved he still was at that point and what it meant for their business, for the family and his own political views, mm-hmm. um, you know, which stretched back way further than the earliest days of the struggle, but yes. of which he must have been aware throughout. Yeah. So, look, in 1990, at the time of the unbanning of the ANC and the SACP, he was 82 years old. Yeah. He'd been retired from Anglo and De Beers for eight years, but obviously he was a sort of eminence grise in the background. He would go into 44 Main Street every day, and he was a consummate wielder of soft power. Oppenheimer was a totemic figure in the white corporate establishment. You know, sure. long after his retirement, people looked up to him. But for all that, he wasn't centrally involved. Now, this is an argument often used by the proponents of radical economic transformation. They say that Oppenheimer is the hidden hand behind the Constitution. He basically steered the ANC's macroeconomic policy choices after the 1990s. It's all rubbish. Um, it's all totally overdone. Yes, big business and the ANC cozied up to each other to a certain extent in the mid-1990s. How cozy? Well, there was something called the Brenthurst Group, mm. and these were, were secret meetings at the time, which took place between the top tier of ANC economic planners. Uh, Mandela was certainly present, um, and from the white corporate establishment, the likes of Donald Gordon, um, HFO, 
um, Conrad Strauss from Standard Bank, all the heavy hitters were present and they would meet on sporadic occasions over a period of two years, 1994 to 1996, in the seclusion of the Brenthurst Library. And because these meetings took place in secret, there was a lot of speculation about what took place there. But I was fortunate to be able to have access to minutes from those meetings and Ah. also interviewed a number of the central players. And Bobby Godsell said to me, well, actually, they were really a waste of time because people (laughs) were excessively polite. Um, And both Mandela and HFO were pretty hands-off. And I don't believe that business extracted any significant concessions from the ANC in the meetings of the Brenthurst Group, you must bear in mind that a lot of other pressures were brought to bear on the ANC at the time. The Berlin Wall had fallen. Communism had collapsed. The ANC's whole ideological anchorage became unmoored. And there was a lot of international pressure on them to move away from their more hidebound, sclerotic socialist pronouncements. Um, but a lot of people came back from exile um, and they looked upon the Oppenheimers and the Menels in their vast suburban mansions and thought, well, I'd quite like to be rich too, um, without the quid pro quo often of hard work. And some of or, them have. An apprenticeship. And some of them did. And, and Anglo played a role in that. Anglo played sure. a role in yeah. the early form of black economic empowerment uh, in 1996 when it sold off uh, Johannesburg Consolidated Investment. Uh, it split into three companies. Two of them were sold to a consortia of black economic empowerment businessmen. Um, one person very active in one of those consortia was Cyril Ramaphosa, mm-hmm. um, who went on to become a, a very wealthy man and not a politically insignificant figure in South Africa either. Or politically astute, some will argue, <laughs> but we'll keep that for another time. I'm not going to trade on your MP toes. Yes, well, there's a lot I mean, to be said Harry about that. But at that point was old. He was old, but he, he thought that Cyril Ramaphosa had really outplayed the Nats in the negotiations. And I think that's probably entirely accurate. He was okay. a, he was a wily negotiator. He had deep skills learned from his time in the NUM. How did he and Mandela get along? Because you always HFO think of these, Mandela. Yeah. You always think of these big historic figures yeah. as being, you know, in every way larger than life and just superhuman in their interactions with other superhumans. And yes. Was that always true? I mean, did they, were they very cordial or was it oh, polite? They, was it an arm's length or were they no, actually good they, mates? They developed a friendship of sorts. So I think the first time that HFO met him was when he capped Mandela with an honorary degree at UCT. HFO had been the chancellor of the University of Cape Town for a period of almost 30 years, 1967 to 1996. And, Mandela, quite soon after his release, received an honorary degree. So HFO capped him. He also met mm-hmm. him at lunch where Helen Sussman said of Mandela, you know, he charmed the bloody lot of them, referring to the white <laughs> businessman. But often Mandela would dine with Harry and Bridget at Brenthurst on his own. This was after Winnie's extramarital um, straying. Mm-hmm. And I think Bridget Oppenheimer thought that – Nelson Mandela was in need of solace and support, and she she often invited him to Brenthurst to dine on his own. It was only on the more formal, grander occasions where she was reputed to have said to him, oh, and Nelson, wear a tie, please, not one of your silly shirts. Um, <laughs> and the hospitality was reciprocated. So I came across an, an entry from Bridget Oppenheimer. She had a daily correspondence by fax with a great friend of hers called Albert Robinson, and she, Bridget, and Harry Oppenheimer were invited to dine on their own with Mandela 
at a state residence used to be called Libertas. Um, in 1996, I think Mandela. Yes, yeah. he wanted uh, HFO's advice on who the next governor of the Reserve Bank should be. Oh. And Bridget goes into great detail about this intimate dinner, and Mandela's complaining, you know, he says, all the good people in the ANC, they just want to make money. Take, for example, Tokyo, Sahwali, mm. take, for example, Cyril, mm. and also Ntata Motlana, who had been his doctor. He said of, of Motlana, you know, he's been my family doctor for years, but if I want to get hold of him, I have to ring the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. Um, so there was an, a relationship of intimacy and some warmth there, and I think HFO had a touch of the Madiba magic stardust sprinkled in his eyes. He found Mandela utterly charming, mm. a thoughtful man, deeply interested in politics and history, wanted to know from HFO the history of the progs. He wanted to know why Jan Smuts had sort of given up on the so-called native question, why he didn't tackle it in a much mm. more decisive fashion before 1948. Uh, so thoughtful. Um, and charming and an interesting interlocutor. And as I say, I think there was a, a genuine friendship that developed between the two of them in the 1990s. And certainly Mandela eulogized HFO on his death. He said, the preamble of our constitution talks of honoring those who helped develop the country. And at the forefront of that group of people is really Harry Oppenheimer and the Oppenheimer family. They, they played a massive role in the development of South Africa and Harry Oppenheimer helped steer South Africa from what was essentially a white supremacist state to non-racial democracy because he he advocated against apartheid over a lo long period of time. He was really in it for the politics of the long haul, and he championed ideas of non-racial democracy and liberalism throughout his life. Where is he buried? Um, he wanted to be cremated. Uh-huh. Uh, but they had the funeral service at the family parish, St. George's, the Anglican parish in Parktown. And in typical HFO style, I came across in 1997, he'd written a series of instructions addressed to Bridget, you know, <laughs> only open this envelope upon my death. <laughs> and he catalogued his funeral service to the choice of hymns. Really? To the people who should speak, you know, if Julian Ogilvy Thompson isn't busy, I'd very much like him to. If he's not this, busy, yes, I'm sure he'd this, make um, time. Verse from the Bible. <laughs> It'd be awfully good if Nikki could read this verse. And these are my wishes. Um, please see to it that they are fulfilled. And that was very much, I think, utterly emblematic of Oppenheimer the man from a young age. And there was never any of that undignified stuff of trying to rule from the grave either. No. In fact, he already handed over a lot of the stuff by the time he was yes. retired. And there were a separate set of instructions, which I came across too, in which he said, I don't seek to fetter the executors of my estate, you know, go and mm. make disbursements as you see fit. Obviously, he saw to it that Bridget was kept in the style to which she'd become accustomed and various other arrangements had been made for the children. Uh, but he didn't seek to rule from the grave. But he had this wonderful line, and I'm not going to quote it correctly, but he, he said – with consummate clarity, he said, all I ask of you, he addressed this to his children and his grandchildren, please act with suitable regard for one another's strengths and weaknesses, aptitudes and foibles, because there's nothing more repulsive than a rich family fighting over money. And I just thought that was wow. quite powerful. God, I quote that word yes. for word. It's just absolutely phenomenal. 
I don't think we can end on a better note than that, but your book is astonishing, and I think everybody who likes just a little bit of what we spoke about today will like a lot about the book. Congrats again, and very nice to sit and talk to you. Um, how much time are you spending in Parliament on average? Well, Parliament is in recess at the moment, but things get going from next week again, and of course it's going to be a busy year heading into the election. So. Yeah. I won't be in the archives for quite some no, time. No, and are they going to rebuild? What are they doing with the building? God only knows. Because um, you guys have been sitting in the Cape Town City Hall for so long now that you're yes, probably used well, to that. That's, that's ready for high days and holy days. Um, usually, for ordinary sittings, we meet in a very small chamber called the Good Hope Chamber, which is at the top of the parliamentary precinct, but it can only accommodate Sounds a very horrible. small number of MPs. So our sessions are still hybrid, taking Ugh. place partly on Zoom, partly in Ugh. person. So, but I don't know when Parliament's going to be rebuilt. Well, one of these days we have to sit and just talk about you because you're also a very, very interesting human being. We could sit and talk about history all day and, uh, and the things that you've done outside of politics, which yeah, are as interesting as the things you've done inside of them. But thank you, Michael. Very Super good. Guys, to see I you. love chatting to you. Awesome for stuff. Me. Thank you. Cheers.